here, uh, hearing God's word um, and fellowship. Let's go ahead and pray together. Lord, I thank you for the time that we get to gather and worship. Lord, it's not about us, it's about you. Forgive us for our sins, Lord. Uh, encourage us and strengthen us. As 2 Timothy 3 says, uh, when we hear your word, Lord, uh, may it pierce us and change us, Lord. Uh, may you rebuke us and encourage us and strengthen us through the hearing of your word. Uh, we love you and we honor you. May you be honored by our time together, and may, you be, um, may we praise you with our hearts and our minds and our lives. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, we are sort of continuing the Jesus story. Uh, we'll be in Matthew chapter 2 today, starting in verse 1. Scriptures will be on the screen. And then from there, we'll take it verse by verse, as we usually do, and see what God has for us. So Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, and it says this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard, that, heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people, chief priests, and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Here we have the story post-Jesus' birth, Matthew chapter 2. We're going to take it verse by verse and see what the Lord has for us in the scriptures. Starting at verse 1, it says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. Here we have the birth announcement of Jesus. Sort of anticlimactic, right? If we're going to talk about something that's so important, here Matthew talks about the birth announcement. As we know, as Shannon has talked about the last few weeks, Mark has zero verses about the announcement of Jesus' birth. Luke has two verses. John has zero verses, unless you count what Shannon was talking about last week in John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And then you have here Matthew that has half a verse about the pronouncement and birth of Jesus. And then quickly he shifts to a different story, and he shifts to talking about the Magi. Matthew chapter 1, it talks about the genealogy of Jesus um, through Joseph. After that, he talks about an angel appearing to Joseph to not divorce Mary. Jesus is born. The Magi come to Jesus. And then it talks about evil King Herod thereafter. And we won't cover that part, but we will next week. And then it goes on. 
uh, Jesus was born, but then Magi came from the east. And here we have our main characters outside of Jesus, of course. And what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about some common myths that maybe we've believed about the Magi or have learned or sort of been Christian tradition or, I'm sorry, Christmas tradition, uh, but not necessarily true. So we're going to ask three questions and you can participate in your mind or verbally, whatever you want. Here's our, and there's no, uh, everyone gets 100% when they leave, so, okay? Uh, so no, don't feel any pressure. Our first question is this, how many wise men came to Jesus? Three, that's what we all say, right? Uh, but actually, the text doesn't give us a number. We presume or assume three, why? Because there are three gifts that are given, gold, frankincense, and what? Myrrh. But what's also interesting is I read a whole bunch of commentaries about this, and actually some scholars think it's more likely that 300 came than three, because three would never get the attention of the king, but 300 would. We don't really know, we can speculate, but all we do know is it was definitely two or more, right? Uh, that we do know. And here's our second question is, did the wise men appear to Jesus when Jesus was a baby? No. Nice job, everyone. 100% all around. The Bible uses the word, and maybe you caught it in our text in verse 11, it uses the word child. So Jesus was not a baby, and that word child translated could mean young toddler all the way up to two years. And then when Herod found out about King Jesus, what did he do in response and opposition to Jesus? He killed all the young boys from two years and under in Bethlehem and in its vicinity. Why? Because that was around the time or age that Jesus would have been when the Magi appeared to him. And our third question, which we already know, I don't know why I asked this third question when the second one answers it, but it says, did the Magi meet Jesus at the same time the shepherds did? No. Nice job. Three for three, everyone. Way to go. No. In our text, it says in verse 11, on coming to the house, not to uh, the inn, not to the stable, not to the cave. So unfortunately, although the Magi are good and fun, uh, they should not be in our nativity scenes. Uh, but what I would encourage you to do, and here's maybe a fun thing that you'll totally won't remember the next year, um, all the way up to December 25th, keep the shepherds, and then on December 26th, shift out the shepherds and put the Magi. And then that's how we get an accurate understanding of the nativity scene. And I know most of you still have your Christmas lights up, right? And Christmas decorations, so perfect. Uh, unlike you, I put my, all of our Christmas decor away December 26th. Uh, it was done. And when I was putting it away, a neighbor came outside and was like, really, that's it? Christmas is over? Really? I was like, hey, sorry. <laughs> but it's more likely that the Magi appeared to Jesus within 40 days of Jesus' birth because Mary had to undergo a 40-day purification period. So it could have been up to 40 days or more up to the two years that Jesus was there. So some more facts about the Magi. It says in our scriptures that Magi came from the east to Jerusalem. So the Magi, some call them kings, some call them wise men, some call them astronomers or sorcerers. Who exactly were they? They were magicians or astrologers, not kings. They were ordinary men from an ordinary place who knew the scriptures enough to see a star and respond from the scriptures to take a journey to go find Jesus. It is likely that they were from Persia, which we would say like is Iran now, right? They're east of where Bethlehem and Israel is. 
And this is what they likely heard through, through tradition uh, from Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. That sounds familiar. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab and the skulls of the, all the people of Sheph. So more likely they came from Persia or modern-day Iran location. This means the wise men, if they did come from the area, from east to west, that means that they traveled about 800 or 900 miles from where they were in order to get to Bethlehem. This was no small journey. This uh, was quite the commitment for Magi to see a star, understand its interpretation, and then take the long journey. But not only was it 900 miles there, but it was also 900 miles back. And likely, it took them longer than 900 miles because they didn't go the same route that they went to get there. They went a different route. The route that they took was probably the fastest route, and the route when they left was probably a lot longer. So this was likely a 2,000-plus mile journey that the Magi took to go see Jesus. No small feat. In the year 2000, there were 15 individuals that took camels from Bethlehem, or I'm sorry, from uh, Persia, Iran area, all the way to Bethlehem. And it took them three months to do it. Uh, and they said in response to that, uh, riding camels is not very comfortable. So imagine taking that journey. It took a long, long time. And so we are going to read the story from the perspective of the Magi. And we're going to ask two questions as we should do when we approach Scripture. And our first question should always be, what does this show me about God? His character, his nature, his quality, who he is. And the second thing is, what does this show me about what I need to do in response to God? And those are the two questions that we're going to hope to answer by the end of our time together. So in summary, we see in the scriptures, the Magi were men who read and believed God's word, sought Jesus, recognized the worth of Christ, humbled themselves to worship Jesus obeyed God rather than man. They were truly wise men. And not only were they truly wise men, but their lifestyle choices exhibited a faith that is worth imitating and mirroring. And so the Magi, we can see them in our perspective. So let's go ahead and jump to verse 2, and it says this. So the Magi arrived to Jerusalem, and they asked this question, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Very choice words from the Magi. I don't know if that's such wise words, though, king of the Jews. We saw his star when it rose and have come to do what? To worship him. Again, O for two, Magi, wise men. Why would they say they're coming to worship a king of the Jews? And why would they say that they're coming to worship? Why? Doesn't seem very wise to me. But here we understand our mission of the Magi, to search the one who has been born king of the Jews and then to do what? Their sole purpose of the 2,000-mile journey is to worship and worship the king of the Jews. And here's our first point of today is Jesus is king. We're going to look at some Old Testament scriptures that point to the birth of Jesus and the life of Jesus and see what it says about the kingship of Christ. And it says in Isaiah chapter 9, not verse 10, it's actually verse 7, typo, of the greatest of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will what? reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this, Isaiah 9, 7. Here's another scripture, Zechariah 9, 9, looking forward to the birth of Christ. 
Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, Jerusalem, God's chosen people. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your what? Your king comes to you righteous and victorious, unmatched, righteous, victorious, guarantee win, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, Zechariah 9, 9. There are three times in the New Testament, there are um, probably a few more than that, but there are three that we're going to talk about that specifically talk about Jesus being king. And what's interesting enough is most of them come from the book of Matthew. Matthew was written to a Jewish audience, and the sole purpose of Matthew was to prove what? That Jesus was king. In that book alone, it has more Old Testament prophecies than any of the other books combined. So here we have our three times where Jesus talks about or being called king of the Jews. The first one was here in Matthew chapter 2, where it says we have come to worship the what? King of the Jews. Second time that we're going to talk about is Matthew 27, 11, that it says this. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before Pilate, the governor. The governor asked him, Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied, Matthew 27, 11. Jesus did not go around saying he was the king of the Jews, but he certainly lived like he was the king of the Jews. The third time we're going to talk about is when he was mocked in Matthew 27, 29. It says this, right before his crucifixion, on his way to Golgotha, it says, they put a staff in his right hand, then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. So there was an understanding or idea amongst the culture and society of who Jesus was, or at least who people said he was, who he lived like, and what was that that was king of the Jews. And here in Matthew 27, verse 37, right above Jesus when he is crucified, it says this, above his head they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the what? King of the Jews. All four Gospels talk about this interaction between Pilate and Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? It is, as you have said, all four of them talk about it. Why? Because he is king of the Jews. And that's why exactly the Magi came, because they knew and they understood in part, not in full, who Jesus was or who Jesus was going to be, always has been. And in verse 2, again, we'll look at it. It says, where is the one that has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. This idea of kingship was differently understood in biblical times than it is now. We cannot, although we may understand it intellectually, understand it because we do not have a king. We have a president. We do not live under 100% authoritarian rule or a monarch. We have a republic. We can vote. We can uh, have our voices be heard. We can protest. We have freedoms to act. But a king is a supreme ruler. There is no voting. He is sovereign over whatever he decides, whatever rules, who lives, who dies, how people live, who gets money, everything, he decides it. A king is a supreme ruler. All throughout the Old Testament, it's the story of people in this um, common conflict between following God and being like the other nations. And it finally came to a head in 1 Samuel chapter 8, where they go to uh, Samuel, and they say, we want a king like what? Like the other nations. 
And so in so doing, they rejected God as their king, and they saw a man as a king. And so God said, fine, if you get a king just to let you know all these bad things are going to happen. And how do the people respond? Give us a king. So they got Saul, and then they got somebody else, and eventually they got, they got David, who was a man after God's own heart, but made bad decisions that wasn't good for Israel and caused people to die and was a murderer. And then his son took over, right? The wisest man of all the earth. Maybe he was the original magi. And yet he led Israel astray. And then we get to this book in the scriptures called Kings. Two full books, 1 Kings and 2 Kings, all about kings throughout history from Judah and Israel. And it's all about their conquests and their shortcomings. And in that book, there are two popular verses, and you probably know that, or two popular uh, sayings in the scriptures that describe each and every king in the book. And the first one is this, so-and-so king did evil in the sight of the Lord, or so-and-so king did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Since the time of Saul, and there were many others after that, each of them failed in part. So when Jesus comes on the scene, God once again establishes his kingship with his people. There is no king after Jesus, and there was really no true king before Yahweh. It was always God as king. So the question then becomes for us, the Magi understood who Jesus was, would you consider Jesus your king? Is he king of your life? Do you worship him as king? I think it's easier for me to see Jesus as a friend, right? We all love John 15, 14. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. I like to see Jesus as a friend. It's, it's, a, it's a lot less intense. I remember in the early 2000s, there was these popular shirts. That's a long time ago for some of you. Um, uh, there's a, a shirt in the 2000s where it said, uh, Jesus is my homeboy. And people would just wear this shirt around, and they would talk about Jesus. Oh, yeah, Jesus is my homeboy. Like, oh, you can't judge me. Only God can judge me. But it's like, you know, we took this God and king, and we boiled them down to something uh, palpable, something that's good for us. But we need to understand who Jesus is. For me, I'd rather see him as king, as counselor, and even savior. Savior is easier for me to take than king. Jesus, the meek, the lamb, the father who seeks the wandering prodigal, the miracle Jesus who wants to heal everything that hurts me. But none of those things can be true unless we as well see Jesus as king. He's not just savior, but he's also Lord. And if he's Lord, then he's king. And if he's Lord of our lives, that means we need to give full authority of our lives over to him. There's no if, and, or buts about it. Paul called this being dead to sin and alive to Christ. And in Galatians 2, chapter 2, verse 20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is not I who no longer live, but a Christ who lives in me. If Jesus is king and Lord, that means he has full authority over our lives. And I think that that's the part of Jesus that is the most difficult for us to bear, and me speaking personally. Because that means every part of my life I need to give over and submit to the scriptures. What I do with my time, what I do with my money, what I do with my relationships, how I vote, how I see politics, how I interact with my boss, the job that I seek, the people I interact with, the friends that I have. Every single space in your life 
needs to be submitted to the authority of God that is found in the scriptures. And for me, that's the difficult part. But I'd like to see Jesus as my friend and my Savior and not really Lord. But yet Magi, when they came to him, they understood. But we have King, Lord, God Almighty, ruler, King of the Jews, King of the elect, King of those who have been gifted faith, King of the world. Jesus is King. The Magi understood it. Herod would reject it, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law would be unmoved by it. The question becomes then, what will we do with it? Let's continue on in our scriptures. It says this, Then they saw a star. The Magi from the east, they traveled to the west. They saw a star in the sky, and they followed it. Traditionally, this has been called the Star of Christ or the Star of Bethlehem. In all the nativity scenes, there's always at the top a beautiful star. On top of our trees, what do we put? A star to remind us of Christ. There's evidence, though, to suggest that this just wasn't a star in the sky, but it was actually something that was supernatural that can't necessarily be explained by science, and I'm going to explain why I think that's true. The fact is that the star of Bethlehem seemed to only appear to the Magi. Uh, we live in a culture where if things happen outside, what, does, what do everyone do? We all go outside to see what it was. But everyone in that culture didn't do what the Magi did. They traveled the 900 miles nobody else did. The star seemed to appear, disappear, and then reappear. It first appeared when they were in the east, and they saw the star, and it guided them all the way to the vicinity of Jerusalem and Bethlehem. But when they got there, where did they go? Did they go right to Bethlehem? No, they had to go to Jerusalem and ask, where is the Messiah to be born? If the star was still there, then they would have went right to Bethlehem. There would have been no need to go to Jerusalem. And then it says in the text, when they saw the star, after they were told Bethlehem, and they headed to Bethlehem, they saw the star, and it says they were overjoyed. It reappeared, appeared, disappeared. It is likely that the star is more like, if you think about the Israel times, when uh, God guided the Israelites through the desert, right? And he had a cloud by day and a burning flame by night. This is probably most likely what that star was. Cannot be explained. Supernatural guiding of the Magi to Jerusalem or to Bethlehem. Continue on in our verse. When they saw the star and when it rose, they came to worship him. So why were they in search of king of the Jews? Why were they looking for him? Well, it says it right there. So that they may worship him. In verse 3, it goes on. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When the king is disturbed, people feel the wrath. People feel the awkwardness, the tension. When the king is disturbed, the kingdom is disturbed. Herod wanted no competition. He wanted no challenge through his throne. Any act or talk of possible overthrow would have caused them to move quickly and harshly, and which he eventually did. No conversation, no talks about another king. For King Herod, he was the ruler, and he was king. Continue on in our text, verse 4. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means among the rulers, um, least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So they got to wonder, the Magi come and they ask, where is to be born the king of the Jews? And Herod doesn't know. So what he does is he gets the chief priests and the Pharisees 
religious rulers, and he asked them the simple question, where is Jesus to be born? And what's interesting about the text is they didn't need to talk about it. They didn't need to wonder. They didn't need to research. They didn't need to sit down and spend seven days to try to figure it out. They knew the answer. And not only did they know where Jesus was to be born, they knew the text in which pointed to where Jesus was going to be born. Here's our second point. Head and heart is greater than head or heart. What does that mean? The chief priests and teachers of the law knew and understood about Jesus, but did not feel a need to do anything about it. As we continue the story, it says, who went to Jesus? The Magi. Did the chief priests go? No. Did the uh, teachers of the law go? No. Did the people of that vicinity that heard about the story go? No. But yet, it was the Magi who went to go to Jesus. And I think we all can feel that way about the Christ story sometimes, right? We've heard it. Sure, sure, sure. Maybe you've already tuned out because you've probably heard hundreds of messages about this, or 40 or 50. Maybe we can all recall the whole story of Christ. Maybe we can all quote Luke 2, or at least the part that was in Charlie Brown. Maybe you have been doing crafts about the Christmas story since you were a child. But the question becomes, do we really believe that Christ incarnate came to be born as a boy that he may die and take our place on the cross? Do you really believe that to be true? Does that story strike you with awe and wonder, with joy and excitement, or is it just another cute story? We are not to hold what we know as what will save us, and we are not to hold what we feel as what will save us. Many people, as it says in the scriptures, claim that they know God. But yet in Isaiah 29, 13, it says, these people come near to me with their lips and their mouths, but yet their hearts are far from me. Many people feel close to Jesus and yet do not live according to what he has called them to live. Romans 12, 1, do not be conformed by the world, but be transformed. How do you be transformed? By the renewing of your mind. But it is instead those who live out the scriptures and know God are those that God calls his sons and daughters. James calls this faith without deeds is dead. But he then goes on and says, I will show you my faith by what? My deeds, by what I do. So the charge here is to not let our remain solely our knowledge of Jesus. Instead, it ought to be us urge and calling each other to follow the narrow road and leave the wide road. It is not about what we know and what we feel solely by themselves, but it's what we know that results in actions and how we live that's our response. The chief priests, the elders, everyone over there knew. Herod knew where Jesus was, but it's only one type of character that went to go see Jesus, and who was that? The Magi. And so our faith is not based on what we know, but that would be pretty sweet if it was. It's based on what we do with what we know. And I think we all know that. And as the story goes on in verse 7, it says this. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out where the exact place, uh, found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me that I too may go and worship him. 
Herod's reputation precedes him. He was cunning and clever, deceivious and shrewd. Herod here tricks the Magi. They fully believed what he was saying. We can look in hindsight and see, yeah, Herod is totally lying to these guys. But at the time, he really tricked them. They really believed that now they're not just going on a mission to find the Messiah. They're now sent by the king. What honor is that? But yet we all know from the text in the next story that Jesus did, or Herod did not want to know where Jesus was so he may worship, but so that he may kill him. So the story goes on in verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. The star once again appears. It appeared, it disappeared, reappeared. And now the Magi continue their journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Five miles left. They're almost there. They get to see the king of the Jews. I wonder what he'll look like. In verse 11, and I wonder what the Magi will do. In verse 11 it says, On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They didn't bow down and worship Mary. They didn't bow down and worship Joseph. They bowed down and worshipped who? Jesus. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Here's our last point for the morning, and it is this. God is so good. You got to ask the question, what were the Magi expecting when they finally got to their destination? When they finally went to where the star was guiding them? Did they know it would be a baby? Did they know the prophecies in Isaiah? Did they know that he would still be young, under two years old? Would he have been a full man? Did they knew, know who Jesus was going to truly grow up to be? Was he just going to be another king? Like we have read throughout the Old Testament? Was he going to be like David? Maybe he'll be like Solomon. Or maybe he'll be like one of those kings that does what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. Did they know? Did they understand that Jesus needed to die? Did they understand the life that Jesus was going to live? The miracles that he was going to perform? That he was going to be the way, the truth, and the life? The door and the road? The good shepherd, did they know all these things about Jesus? The resurrection and the life, did they know these things about Jesus before they got there? And then what was their response when they saw that it was a baby? We just know that they worshiped. They may not have had all the answers, have understood the biblical texts like the chief priest did or understand the law like the teachers did. They may have not gone to the same schools that the Jews did, but they still worship. God is so good to gift us a Savior, to live the life that we lived, to suffer under hands of evil, and to take our place on the cross. And so if God did not put into place a plan of salvation, we would still be, as Ephesians talks about, without hope and without God. In this story, God is the one who initiates salvation for his people. God is the one who does it, not us. Ephesians chapter 2, which I believe to be the best illustration of the gospel outside of the four gospels. Um, and we all understand that this Christ narrative is not just a cute story to be read during the holidays. Instead, it's a story of hope, a story of salvation, a story of life, a story of purpose. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why we celebrate the birth of Christ. So what we're going to do now to close out our time together, I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. What's great about the scripture is it all talks about the gospel 
in words that I can easily understand and comprehend. Verses 1 through 3 talks about our life before we knew Christ. Verse, verse 4 is the interruption when Christ came into our life, all the way up to verse 7. And then 8, 9, and 10 all, is all about our life now that we know Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says this, and we can think of ourselves in this place. As for you, you were dead in transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, all of us, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And here's the beautiful part in verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, did what? Made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions and sins. And here's the pinnacle of the whole Christmas story, birth, narrative, incarnation. This is all of it right here in this verse. Because of his great love for us, Christ came to be born. Because of his great love for us, God, omnipotent, omniscient, came and humbled himself and became a man, 100% God, 100% man, fully God, fully man, truly. Because of his great love for us. Why? Because he loves us. There's no other story in which you need to hear more and remind ourselves of more than the idea that God loves us. And our response to God's love is what's most important. And so as we finish off the holidays in this next week, as you put away your Christmas lights, and don't, don't wait too long to do that. As we do that, we all understand that why is this season something that we come and we celebrate? Because God loves us. While we were still sinners, without hope, without Christ, without anything, we desire to go our own way. We're rebellious and deceitful and prideful and disobedient and vile. For it was men who put Jesus on the cross. It was people who put Jesus on the cross. It was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. The saddest verse in all the scriptures, probably like top 10, John chapter 1, it says, Jesus came to that which was his own, and what? His own did not recognize him. And yet, because of his great love for us, he still came. And not only did he come, but he took our substitutionary place on the cross, right? We're all by nature, as Ephesians says, deserving of wrath. And so Jesus came and says, I'm going to take that upon myself so that you may live and you may have hope and you may have be born again, as John chapter 3 says. That you may have a new life, as 2 Corinthians 5 says. God took our place on the cross that we may live. Why would God do that? Because his great love for us. Why would Christ come to be born? Because of his great love for us. Why would the king of the world and the universe and the king of the Jews and the elect come to be born and live a life as a man for 30, 33 years? Why would he do such a thing? Because his great love for us. So this Christmas story, this narrative of birth and angels and Zechariah and Mary and Elizabeth, 
and all these wonderful things, we celebrate that because it points us to the gospel story. We were without hope and without Christ, and yet he came. Why? Because of his great love for us. Let's continue on in Ephesians chapter 5. It says, It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show what? His incomparable, incomparable riches and his grace. Expressed how? In his kindness to us in Christ. That's how we see God's grace. That's how we see God's kindness, God's love. How do we see it? Through the person and character of Jesus. Since his birth and onward, that's how we see God's incomparable, unexplainable, wonderful love for us. Verse 8. This is where it gets really, I mean, all of it's good. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. There is no way in which we can do anything to gain or get the salvation in which God offers. But instead, it's the gift that God gives us. And so our response to what we know is what matters by how we live. How do you know that Christ is king of your life? Does your life reflect that Christ is king of your life? That's the question. Right, because it's not about what we know, it's about what we do with what we know. And then what we, when we do correctly with what we know, then we can be confident that we are in Christ. doesn't mean we will be perfect. That doesn't mean we will always get 10 out of 10. That doesn't mean we will always follow the, the narrow gate. That doesn't mean that. But it does mean when we stray and when we go far away, Christ will always bring us back. We understand our sin and we understand our need to repent and turn and come to places like this on Sunday mornings that we may come and worship together. This is not a place for the healthy. Instead, it's the place for those who know by nature we are deserving of wrath. And yet God, in his great love for us, came and took our place. And that all started when Jesus was born in Matthew chapter 2. We don't come because we have our lives together. We come because we know our great need for Jesus. And although we'll sin and we'll stray and we'll go, Christ will always bring us back because faith is a gift that he has given us. It's irresistible. It's unexplainable. We can say, why does God love us? Because he chooses to. Well, that doesn't make sense to me. I don't really get it. But yet that's the answer because he chose to give us faith. And let's continue on. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, that is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And then verse 10, who we were in Christ, what Christ did for us, and now our role as followers of Jesus, as those who believe the incarnation of Christ. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works. To live a lifestyle that's reflective of what we believe to be true, even in the midst and in a culture that does not agree and will deny it, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That is the role of the Christian and the believer, and that is why we celebrate Christmas. It's not simply the baby Jesus, but it's the meaning behind baby Jesus coming. Why? Because that shows God's inexpressible, unexplainable love for us. And I will close off with our last verse in verse 12. It says this, talking to the Magi, they come, they worship Jesus, they give him gold, frankincense, myrrh. They bow down before him, not to Mary, not to Joseph, not to anybody else. They bow down to Jesus. And then after that, having been warned in a dream, they do not go back to Herod, the king. They do not go back to him. 
because they have now recognized and realized the one true king. And it wasn't Herod, and it's not Herod, and it's not any man, it's not any person, it's not any idea, it's not any belief, but instead it's the person and character of Jesus. They do not go back to Herod. They defy the king at the cost of their very lives. They don't go back. Instead, in safety for the protection of their true king, King Jesus, they return to their country, to Persia, by another route. There are many things to talk about in this last scripture, but the one thing that stands out for me the most, in this story of of, um, Christ's birth, Christ's narrative of when he was a baby, a lot of it is to the Jews, right? The angels appear to Zechariah when he was in the temple worshiping. They appear to Mary. They appear to Joseph. And yet here we read in part God also revealing himself to the Gentiles, to you and to me. He appeared to the shepherds, and now he appeared to the magi. God from the start, it says in Ephesians, showed his incomprehensible love for the Gentiles, for you and me. Not only is he king of the Jews, but that's better interpreted. He's the king of his people. And furthermore than that, he's the king of the world. But yet, his kingdom has specific people. And if you've turned from your sin, you've repented, and if you believe that Jesus came to die on the cross, you are considered part of his kingdom. And if you have not yet done that, I want you to take today by reading through Matthew, get on our year Bible plan, talk to somebody, open the scriptures, keep coming to church, keep asking your questions. But it's until we repent and believe, as it says in Acts 16, then we can be sure and know, as it says in 1 John, that we are children of God. By what? When we understand that Jesus is king, we come and we worship him. We obey God rather than man, just like the Magi. And in so doing, we can know and be confident that we are part of God's kingdom. It's not perfect. We probably don't live with much honor as well sometimes, but yet we are still part of his kingdom. And that's the beautiful thing about the gospel. And so I encourage you to think about this really think about it, and then live what you think to be true, which is the scriptures. And so God, from the start, showed his love for us. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the story of Jesus. It is not just a cute story that we read on Christmas, but Lord, it shows your great love for us. It cannot be resisted. It cannot be explained. It cannot be defined. We cannot box it up, even if we tried. We cannot put it in the book. Your love for us is beyond words. And we thank you, Lord. Help us to come to you as king of our lives. Help us to turn from the areas and places in which we have not put you king. Help us to turn from our sin and turn to you. Give us strength and grace and courage, Lord, as we seek your face. May you be honored by the rest of our time in worship. And may you be honored by our days and times. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.